it's been a really, really long time. And the reason that there's been such a hiatus is because we've just finished collaborating with the Stephen Spender Prize. This is kind of a special episode. It's been super exciting to collaborate with this prize. Um, the Stephen Spender Prize is an annual competition for poetry and translation. They have categories for young people, um, so 14 and under, 16 and under, and 18 and under, as well as an open category for adults. So the prize does incredible, really important work promoting creative translation and multilingualism in the UK um, with a focus on young people. So this 2021 competition, they received translations from over 80 languages from entrance and a record number of young people. In this episode, you're going to hear the winning translation of the open category of the 2021 prize. Then an interview with the winning translator and poet, Harry Mann, translating Andre Rusit's written Norwegian Bokmar poem, The Green Tent. And we'll get into the poem and their relationship, collaboration, their work after we listen to the poem. Uh, and then we'll get to talk to Karen Ibaroka, who was one of the judges for last year's competition. And we talk about what the judges, judging with um, Daljit Nagra and Samantha Schnee, what they were looking for in the translations they received. So there's a lot going on, but I hope you enjoy this insight into one of the biggest translation prizes in the UK. Det grønne teltet, the green tent, forvandlet til de lyseblå slagstøvlene, forever changed into some light blue impact boots, forvandlet, forever changed, til en shetlandskenser sovende i regnet, into a fair isle pullover that sleeps out in the rain. Mobiltelefonen, the mobile on the path, på stien forvandlet til en Forever changed into the rain-soaked paperback. Forever changed into a butterfly earring that slips from a left earlobe. The shattered glasses forever changed into strands of hair. Forvandlet til det utslokka leirbålet som holder pusten. Hårstrikken forvandlet til svart sneid. Forever changed into the extinguished campfire that holds its breath. Forvandlet til en hestehale som er slutt av løpe. The hair elastic changed forever into a black snail, changed forever into a ponytail that stopped mid-flight. Mikrofonen på utesenden. The microphone on the Utesenen changed forever into a neglected football. Forvandlet til den etterlatte fotballen. Forvandlet til det glatte svabarget som gaper stille. Changed forever into the wet slippery rock agape to this day. Panikken. The panic. Forvandlet til stillhet. Forvandlet til bloddråpe til ferskvannskreps. Changed forever into silence from the freshwater crayfish and the sleeping princesses till sovande prinsesser sorg the grief förvandlat till tone forever changed into vines overflowing with roses sorgen förvandlat till tio års sövn mens rosehäcken vuxer från asfalten upp längs betongen the grief changed into a decade of sleep while the roses climbed the asphalt spread along the concrete Etasje, floor, for etasje, by floor, in gjennom de knuste vinduene, growing in the broken windows.
That was the winning poem and translation of the Stephen Spender Prize's Open Category of 2021. Now we're speaking with Harry Mann and Andre Rousset, who have worked together to write A Fire Thereafter, a collection of poems, elegies in response to the 2011 terror attacks in Norway. We asked them to introduce themselves. I'm Harry Mann. I am a poet, editor and translator. I've been writing uh, poems for, uh, for, for a really, really long time. I started when I was sort of six years old and I my first kind of my first pamphlet was called Lift and it won the UNESCO Bridges of Struga Award um, and then I kind of did a big large national project on endangered species called Finders Keepers um, and then this is sort of the third uh, sort of the third book really. I'm Andre Rousset I'm, um, I'm a poet from Norway I've been, been publishing poetry for 21 years actually over a new year uh, Published my first book when I was 19 in Norway, and I've been working as a poet and working with literature for the last 20 years. Um, not only not only uh, poetry, but also worked as a, you know I'm doing literary reviews for different papers. I've worked in in different um, um, studies like like teaching, teaching creative writing. I've been a journalist. I've basically done lots of things combined with with writing, but but primarily I'm I'm, I'm a poet and and uh, I've uh, uh, published uh, six six collections of poetry in Norwegian, and this this one here is is the number six book. Yeah. But this poem, the Stephen Spender Prize, like how much is it two separate voices, two separate poems, or how much is it the same poem? Basically, we've given each other uh, very much freedom in this project, so it's kind of a unique project. It's not a. Uh, I've given uh, Harry a lot of freedom in in his translations. Harry knows a little bit on the region and, and 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 the same goes the other way that when I've done we've we've done po this book together, uh, I think that it's not only translations, it's kind of like remaking the poems in a new language. And we've given each other a lot of freedom in that regard. And I think that it's because uh, I really trust Harry. I think Harry is a brilliant poet and it's a very different poem for me. So it was important in this in this project and, and with the translations of the standard press, I think uh, if you compare the two poems, it's going to be a lot different. Uh, but but of course, it has the same angle and it has the same kind of narrative in a way. But but it's uh, it's two different poems, really. I think. Yeah, I think like I think there is an element of recreation for both of us in in our respective languages. I think one of the interesting processes throughout making this book beyond just the Stephen Spender Prize poem. <laughs> often we would look at each other's translations and then make alterations to the original. There's that old uh, Borges line that, 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 that the uh, the original is unfaithful to the translation. <laughs> so, and it was a certain element of that, you know, of, uh, you know, when you're kind of looking in the clockwork of a language, thinking about how idiom translates from one language to another, it's not quite the same. And also where you kind of break individual lines over a line break, it carries a very different kind of pause between the two languages. Um, and that also then has an effect on the extent to which a, a, a line works as a unit in its own right. Um, so there are a lot of kind of questions that sort of fold into that. But I think for us, we made, we kind of approached each poem individually because it is, after all, about individuals and thinking about how either we're going to work with music here or we're going to work with a kind of something which is a clear and close, more academic um, view of the translation. Um, or we're going to take something which is almost a riff on a, on a theme. Um, so looking more at a kind of trans-creation approach. So it was a bit of a blend of the three. However, for me, 
one of the key things going back through the editorially through the English manuscript, the English translation, was to say, okay, I'm going to make some certain decisions. And I'm, something I call to say to my students is it's like meatloafing. I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. <laughs> I'll do anything in this translation, but I'm not going to do that. This is going to be my consistent choice that I'm going to make. So there were quite a few kind of consistent choices that were, were just like yardsticks saying, okay, right, this is always going to be this way in English, because ultimately you want, I want to carry Andre's voice in English and try and make that as as uh, as straightforwardly a kind of one for one as you as I can possibly make it and to make sure that 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 carries across so that was really central. For Stephen Spender did you did you sit down and say to each other like we're going to enter this poem into it like what was or was it was there a collection of poems I just want to make sure that I've understood correctly like how Stephen Spender works as a competition. The Stephen Spender Prize, very established prize in poetry and translation. Very few prizes exist in uh, poetry and translation fields in the UK. Um, there's very, very little support for poetry and translation from most languages in the UK. Um, there are organisations trying to, you know, help um, help that process along. We're great exporters of literature, obviously, from English literature into Europe. So it's kind of how do you make that um, more of a correspondence and more of a conversation? Um, and Stephen Spender is completely central to that. So there, that is really the big prize. There's the drawn Dryden Prize as well for translation. So when so regardless of what the subject is, if you're sitting down with a group of poems that have been translated, the Stephen Spender inevitably will be one that you think like I should submit work to this from this project, drawing attention to the project. Um, uh, the Stephen Spender Prize, you can't enter things which have previously been published. So we weren't able to enter things that were currently being published in England. You can only enter a poem that has been published in another language that you then translate into English for the first time. It's also worth bearing in mind that kind of like I said, this project was really done for love, so it wasn't just, you know, I was working night shifts at my desk, at local Tesco, with kind of thermos and going through this with a pencil, so it wasn't uh, like, oh, let's, let's, let's deliberately do this project for this purpose, definitely not. Um, it was something that was just, uh, that was there, that was available, that was a form of support um, that we really, um, really, really hoped to get for it. Um, and, and this is my... Um, first time entering a translation uh, competition of any description so I was really delighted and amazed that, uh, that, um, that it did so well that it's really thrilling and there are so many other good translators um, and amazing translations in that in, in those number two number three slots and um, but yeah no it's fantastic the Stephen Spender Prize is amazing so okay so it's been from what I'm getting from, from what you said that it's not it's not like the direct mappings of like people to poems or for, yeah um so what is going on in this poem uh, i think i think that a lot of the you know the first reaction to the utah and, and the 22nd of july terror was was that we're going to change sorrow and, and, and horrible into love and affection and uh, you know the first thing that happened after the tragedy was people were walking in 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 the in processions uh, and showing that if, if somebody can do this horrible, then we can show back that we love. So it's kind of like the thing that you, 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 you take an event from being horrible and you change it into something else. And in this poem, I guess, uh, there's a lot of transformation, uh, transformations in the poem, like kind of showing back to that everything horrible from that place is changing to something else. And in the end of this poem, it, 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 you use the, the, the rose and the thorns 
kind of grows up through the through the floors of, of, of the buildings around them. Like the, the, the government party's offices was just nearby the government quarters, so all the windows were blown out. And so in this last picture where you have roses growing up from the ground and, and through the floors, is also a picture of how difficult it is for, for, for us Norwegians because we, we, we met this tragedy like kind of uh, intuitively with like, with kind of like forgiveness and love but it's not like that for everyone i think a lot of a lot of the people experienced this felt that was just strange that our children has been taken away from us our, our loved one has been taken away from us and the first thing that happens is like it's being changed into this love uh procession which 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 is kind of like per like like horrible for a lot of people so this poem kind of yeah it kind of talks about that as well, how how these horrible images kind of changes all the time. The green tent is, is basically because what you see when you see in Utah, you see all these tents uh, on the camping area. So so the tents are kind of like a very central picture in 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 in, in description of Utah. Um, you want to? I can I can continue afterwards, Harry, if you want to say. Anything. Yeah, as Andre says, if you look as bird's eye view over Utah Island. There's a there's a um, a cafe building and then there are two sort of major tent sites. But the tent site uh, is where sort of t- teenagers camp camp as they kind of gather for these for these talks. It's almost like a festival on the island where everybody gathers together and to to meet on the and where they've witnessed talks is on that Utrenen, which is in this poem, where they meet on this outdoor stage effectively, which is a sort of small stage where they have speakers and they sit on the grass and, uh, and watch them. So yeah, so Andrew, you might need to jump in and stop me if I get this wrong, but basically there's quite a strong um, resounding uh, belief, uh, Sami belief, that every, inanimate, every object has a soul and that there's, therefore there's a kind of transformation between, we're sort of on a kind of entropic path, our souls are transforming into other things. Um, so these transformations are all uh, part of that. There's that um, line from Hughes' Tales of Ovid where he says, I want to talk about bodies changing into other bodies. And it's this very similar Ovidian idea of things transforming from one thing into another into another. Hence the butterfly, um, these butterflies changing all the time into um, into other things. Well, you have like people playing football, the, the, the outward scene where people were talking, everything goes into a different mode and, and the po- kind of just describes that in different ways I think to 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 but to be honest I like I feel when we wrote this book I feel that this poem was probably one of the poems that came to me just quickly uh, I, and it felt it felt like looking at Uta and looking at looking at this tragedy this this poem is close to my heart in a way because it, it's about uh, about the things left behind there that ultimately changes like everything that person goes into like everything changes feelings change i don't have a good explanation to that really i just feel the poem really explains itself like it's moving toward between identities and things and keep changing and yeah that's the best answer i can give i think there is that running that aesthetic as well running through um your poems of there being a kind of displacing action between one thing transforming into the inherited images 
going from one line to the next line to the next line, leaving it open for the reader to make those connections and to sort of to therefore have a kind of stillness between each of the images. The difference between me and you as writers is probably mm. why writing is more abrupt and more fragmented and more moving from image to image, while, while yours is probably a little bit more narrative. So it's two different really styles of writing. I'm like picture to picture, and while you have, yeah, it's, it's different ways of approaching this, which is also exciting because it means two different voices and different ways of telling 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 poetry that in this project. I feel like um, this is collaborative, yes, but the or like the book in general, or like the first um, you know set of elegies was under that was your that was your project, right? And you came to Harry and you said, "I want to do this thing. What do you think?" Um, can you talk me through the the origin story of the initial works, like the set of um... the year after the tragedy? You know, had a trial. You had a trial of understanding Blavitz, who's the perpetrator, the, the, the murderer, um, the terrorist. And uh, during that that trial, that was um, broadcasted live on Norwegian TV. Um, we were kind of like we got the details of the how horrible this was. So. In one part of, of the, when I read um, the indictment, it's called indictment uh, of, of Breivik, they, they want us to, she was uh, on the love path. Uh, she was shot in the head and then through the neck. Uh, the bullet went from the breast to the backbone. So it was just like this extremely, extremely dark, horrible. Like one thing is, it's a breaking news and whenever something like that happens, but it was just like a, a very like narrative chronological uh, description of how, how all the people were, when they were shot, how they were shot, how the bullets went through the bodies. And out of that, I made a found poem. I took away all the names and I took away, so there's, there's a poem in the middle of, 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 um, of this book. Uh, there's an excerpt of it in the English version, which kind of consists of a line from the first, uh, death uh, bullet until the last one and just how the bullet travels through the body so it's like just one like 70 page long line of description of like brutality so this was this was the first poem that emerged from this project and then i was asked to to because this this poem has been taken in some universities and, and some i was asked to do a broader book on the on the 22nd of july tragedy and i felt i couldn't do that i felt that was impossible i felt that everything i kind of could express in meeting with this horrible event was this kind of poem but after a while i was starting thinking is there any way to kind of expand this book and and that's when i contacted harry because i felt i could never do that alone to carry all these material on your own, extremely dark stuff is so difficult. And, and, and I needed someone to, to write this book together with. And I also thought that Harry, first of all, being a brilliant imaginary poet, you know, one of the best poets I, I, I met in my lifetime, that, uh, it's also that you have an eye and you have a kind of perspective on it from a different place than here in Norway. So that was, there's many reasons why me and Harry connected on this project. First of all, because Harry has came up with the ideas of how we could take this project further in, in the shape forms, but also that Harry represents a different eye into this tragedy. So uh, I'd say there's many layers uh, to why we did this collaboration and I never thought it would happen. I never thought, but, but um, 
in Norway, this is kind of like the cold, dark matter. It's a big hole in all of Norwegian's hearts, this strategy. I've always thought of writing as something you do alone, but, but, but in this project, I needed someone. I needed a dialogue. I needed someone to expand words with. So yeah, it's, yeah. So this shape poem is, is an example of um, a series of elegies for victims. And when you read it, there are so many details. Um, I suppose I'm just wondering how much, where the information has come from, like how, I know that you said that you removed names for anonymity and for respect, um, but I, I just wonder like, is part of this fictional? Is this based on, like where, where does this green tent come into? Where does this jumper, this, this barrel sweater? A lot of these images is like pictures from the island, stories from the island. You know, the, 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 the youth there, they, they lived in tents, like they, they were sleeping in tents. It was a very, so a lot of these details are, they are, uh, maybe it wasn't the blue boot, but there were things left behind. So none of this is, you know, there was a green tent there, but, but, but it's, it's kind of fictionalized in a way that these, in, these things, the boots, everything, it represents these kind of things that was left behind from running kids, uh, sweaters, uh, tents. So it's not like these are not found poems. These are kind of like imaginative poems, but they're built upon the situation and, and the thing. So I wouldn't say that if, if, if you look to the list of, of items from Utah, you wouldn't find those exact items, but they represent kind of the items that were there. So uh, while, while, the, while the found poem, while the projectile poem is a poem that's very clinical and just consists of actual shootings. Uh, the poems in, in the face shapes are more free. They are interpretations of what witnesses, uh, survivors have said. They are uh, images of what we've seen from the island. So, so I'd say that, 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 uh, that while projectile is a very cold, cynical found poem, the, the, the face poems is material that is freely interpreted into a poetic kind of style. Yes, it's absolutely. Yeah, but uh, I think to, there are sort of elements which are kind of. I mean, a good way to look at it is a sort of composite image, really. There's just elements which are kind of pastiched, and there's some parts which are, uh, which yeah, which is sort of fictionalised. I mean, because in the editorial process, we really wanted to make sure that the individual biographies were taken out. We still wanted to preserve the elements that of, of people's lives that are in there. Um, I mean, uh, one young person was a champion swimmer. Um, somebody else was um, had grown up and, and escaped from Sarajevo. There were so there were there are these things, there are these elements which are kind of visible in the in the in the poems, but we were very careful to make sure uh, that that was kind of scattered throughout. So you always are ever so slightly standing at a distance um, from the reality, um, uh, and all of that is just out of uh, respect for the kind of anonymity and privacy of those people. Um, an article came out um, not very long ago um, while we were working on the book uh, about how much abuse survivors uh, continue to suffer um, from people writing to them and so on. And so actually uh, it was really important to make sure that, um, that there was that degree of, of privacy, but also it is very kind of, ultimately it is is written for love this book and we've we and so we wanted to make sure that there was something in there that was familiar that was a touchstone that felt like we had um 
approached the subject as respectfully as possible and each person tried to honour them as respectfully as possible. This is one of the big problems with this project is that you are kind of directing it towards biographical material, but still you are fictionalizing it. And that is uh, one of the big, like, ethical and, and problematic questions that we've asked ourselves throughout the project. And, and we've solved it in the way we solved it. Like, like we, we started out with, with using more biograph biographical uh, information towards each of the specific faces. But, you know, after talking to, you know, different people and sources, we we decided to, to go away from that. But that is a big, that's a big question in this project. How can you kind of precisely uh, give a description of, of, of this to poetry while you're still taking those freedoms that, that, that you are interpreting pictures, you are changing pictures, you are moving, gliding of signifiers and all that in, in the poem. So it's a, that's a huge, uh, huge and very important question, I think, in this book. And, and I don't know if that's been solved perfectly but I, I believe we, we made our choices on on, on these uh, on these difficult questions yeah i think it's that a whole emily dickinson line of tell the truth but tell it slant and the, the transcription of reality um is not really the same doesn't really fit within a, a narrative frame in quite the same way not that you're aiming for a narrative within a poem specifically but in terms of sort of how that translates can also create a wrong impression within the reader um something interesting uh, that came up was uh, there was an Eric Popper movie about the 22nd of July uh, in, in which um, teenagers are standing on the beach um, hiding from the gun below the below the cliffs um, and one of them sings a Cindy Lauper song and it was brought up in a review as being you know oh, this is so this is so saccharine and how dare the filmmaker make this decision but that actually happened and that was a real event that took place which is obviously incredibly jarring and so that it's really to be kind of honest about the subject um you are trying to uh preserve and conserve um both respect and also the intensely affecting difficulty of the intensely affecting uh s sense of loss um to be to be carried across and and that is ultimately the the larger thing than, than what what really what was the actual event at that moment for that person yeah, I guess we had um, some questions about ethics and the idea of, you know, whether you grappled with, is it, you know, how much can you, I don't want to say use, but, you know, how much, in, in poetry, like, you're writing, like, how much of it is just for you and to, like, see, you know, the just to have fun writing poetry and to see the limitations of poetry and, like, whether that's appropriate as a thing to do around um something that has happened and is real and as you say is a reflection of reality like how the ethics of that um yeah and, and it's also that that you know in norwegian you have films about the 22nd of july you have pro, like sartrus i was going to like non-fiction stories uh, what can you do in poetry how can you use is, is poetry a genre that you can you can describe this in a different way and how it's 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 a lot of a lot of difficult questions that, but I, I think that that I've written a collection of poetry a couple of years ago that was about a personal loss. And one of the questions kind of asking in this project, can you write on behalf of someone else's loss? Because this is not a personal loss for me. I didn't know anyone personal from Utøya, and that just raises also a big question. Is can you, is poetry only reserved for personal losses or can poetry 
kind of grasp a, a tragedy that's collective and that's not personal, like directly personal connected to you. So that's also a question that's being kind of raised with doing this project. This is, I just sometimes think about how is it for a parent that lost a child or some survivors to read these poems? How does that feel for them? Are you kind of like um, chugging in or like 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 using a tragedy to to write great what's why do you do it well why do we go into this dark material without a, a, a deep personal attachment and decide to write on behalf and, and and structure these so this these are ethical questions i believe it's possible i believe it's something you can do because i believe poetry has that ability but i can imagine that there are a lot of different reactions to that and and not all of them i think will be positive because it's very confronting material it's very confronting book it's it's a book that confronts the reader in many ways on on, on a very very serious matter yeah there's a kind of question of the uh, uh of poets acting both as chroniclers but also to kind of to account um to and for the tribe and the question of um poetry being a kind of a way of communing there are a lot of questions um, surrounding sort of the ethical dimension of it throughout the project uh, that really kind of remain, as as Andre said, really remain quite open. But I think there's also the aspect to it as well of if not you, then who, what, what if you're in a position to be able to um, dedicate a significant portion of your life to writing about this um, and you feel that you can bring something to the subject and bring light to that subject in Specifically, I mean, from my position, it's it's significantly easier because it's not a national subject over here. But highlighting um, a tragedy abroad to not just someone that is abroad, but our neighbour, our geographical neighbour. You know, what do you do when your neighbour's house is on fire? Well, you you do what you can to to reach out and uh, and and comfort. I was just going to say briefly that one of the things that attracted me to um, submitting this one particular poem is that I saw Andre reading it at um, Oslo Library um, earlier in the year and. It, uh, and it was so profoundly moving and so obviously deeply connected uh, to sort of a lot of the feelings that were coming up in the 10 year, ten years after um, sentiments that I felt it was really important to kind of present that, present that poem in English. And there wasn't really the opportunity to, uh, to publish it in here in, in, the, in the small condensed kind of pamphlet version of the manuscript. So I felt it really, really did need a place somewhere. So... I was completely bowled over that it, um, that it won the, the Spender Prize. It was incredible, yeah. But it was a really central poem for me, so, yeah, and, and really beautiful. And hearing Endoy say the word for Vandalin over and over and over again, it's just, uh, it's incantatory and extraordinary. Yeah, and the for Vandalin that you pick up on, the forever changed, that's what that means. But there is a certain, I found translating, there's a kind of gripping nature of Norwegian that isn't present in English when something is transmuted from one thing into another. There is a, a sense of nuance in English that just isn't there, I didn't feel, in the Norwegian in Bokmal. That is, it's, just, it's just not quite the same if you say something like a, a bicycle changes into uh, a milk float or something. There is something which is um, sort of very nuanced and, and, and filled with, 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 with something metaphorical there. And that metaphorical element was, was gone. So I, just, so I kept the music from the original word for Vandalin forever to turn it into forever to add that word in so then you would have this sense of something changing permanently and it would not it would be irreversible that change um just for people that don't know anything like me um i think i read that the the 
Norwegian is in is it book bookmar or like I don't know what's the difference between yeah bookmar bookmar is is uh, I'm writing in bookmar but in Norwegian you have two like official languages that are very very close to each other that's Nynorsk and it's bookmar it's the written it's kind of like the written language we speak you know Norway has extremely a lot of dialects so whenever you go to Norway whenever you go from especially here on the west coast where I'm from. Uh, you go to one little city and to the next, and, and the language spoken is very, very different from place to place because Norway used to be, I mean, like small fishing villages and, and language has developed. And like so, so we can all understand each other when we speak, but uh, the way we speak is very different. But Bukmål is kind of like the written language that dominates in Norway, like 80%. Or I'm not going to go into deep like facts here, but 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 Bukmål is 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 the main written language here. You know, it's like if you go to Barnsley or you go to London, there's two ways of speaking English and, and the same goes to Norway. But 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 I, I felt this was right to write in Bookmore, the language that we all write and understand. So I couldn't have written this book in dialect or in, in any other way, I think, because uh, it needs to speak out to the whole nation. And, uh, and that's what Bookmore does. I want to come back to what you said about people in Norway still... Um like the trauma being sort of like carrying on and on because people keep writing to them and like I guess in light of that um I just wondered what for both for both of you what is it why did you feel that this needed to be done um and this sounds really hard like I think I'm not passing any judgment I just mean like what was it why did you feel like these this needed to happen well, well I think I think every poem or every book doesn't start with that I think it starts with just a poem and uh, and for me it started with projectile that, that 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 poem just came to me i believe that this tragedy it, it represents so much extreme suffering and kind of like uh, um injustice to, to these kids and i feel like i've been working with with sorrow poems and elegies all my life and and mostly it's been attached to a personal loss or the personal kind of experience and and i wanted to to write a book about something that we all feel in Norway, that we all feel, we feel that it's like a collective like trauma that's not personal. And that was kind of my way into it. I think you never know when you're going to write a book. Like you have many ideas, but 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 when this projectile poem came to me, this first kind of like touch line on, on this strategy, it felt it felt felt like something that was necessary for me to write about. I don't I don't really have any 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 better answer to it than that but but you know that's that's with life that's with writing some projects just come to you uh, in, in in strange ways um uh, and, and and this project i think is probably the strangest in that occasion because why do you want to write a sorrow poem on behalf of of norway uh, for a tragedy wherever where that personal connection is not that ob- uh, obvious so yeah yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, Wilke described being a poet as being a kind of condition, like hunger or, or being stricken in some way, or, yeah, but a kind of, I think hunger is about, is about, right, there's no, you don't wake up in the morning and go like, I could choose any career in the world, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a poet, I can't wait for the swimming pool of money, <laughs> you know, you don't, it's just not, it doesn't work, you know, it doesn't, it's just not. You, know, you get a kind of calling effectively to say I'm going to write about this subject it's the thing that haunts you the thing that stays in your mind your imagination in your heart and it's the thing you want to do and 
in that, in that respect there is no I think it's kind of a don't meet your hero situation where you're like uh, <laughs> you know you, you assume that there's a kind of inner turning or an inner logic there and it's more, more emotional and it's more kind of felt out through the senses but like I say for this I mean for, for this project it was so clear that it meant so much to Andre and, uh, and it was such a I felt it was such an important subject um, to address and it's only grown in importance since since it happened. I mean, now we, we with with the luxury of hindsight, it seems to make more sense with the rise of the alt right and the presence of Trump and so on, and and and, and that extreme politics um, that has has now come to the fore. But at the time, it was completely incomprehensible. And when we started, it was still in that position of being incomprehensible and being, uh, you know, being so extraordinary and such a kind of one off. You know, this lone wolf terrorist um that was an an anathema and in addition he was the perpetrator was the first person to be caught alive who um, had committed a mass shooting in this way so it was it it was trying to make sense of that and understand it uh, was you know herculean task and not one that yeah again has a a definitive end i'm sorry we keep giving answers that have no definitive end (laughs) there's no you know there's no no ultimate answer to that it's I always think in writing, you there are a lot of reasons why you write that tend to collect around the idea of communicating an idea, because language being a communicative, communicative medium, we kind of get get kind of anchored in that. In addition, there are ideas such as you know going in search of the creative endeavour or trying to fathom out an answer or trying to be cathartic in some fashion, and those also collect around that idea of communication, whether that's communication with yourself or with a potential readership. But the um, but yeah, so. Part of it too is the creative endeavour. Is this really possible? There were a lot of times on this project when, when both we thought we never saw an ending in sight, uh, and we did question ourselves as to whether or not we should give in because it was just so hard. It was so impossible. We laid it out. We kept. We had a lot of discussions about just how incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult it was, uh, to do, and and whether whether it was whether it was possible. With this idea of uh, language of communication in mind, um, I'm going to ask you a question. I feel like both of you are going to say, like, that's not the point. That is not what I want to. I don't want to answer this question. But um, what do you want people to know? What do you want people to feel in reading these poems? And I'm asking that because I never, obviously, I, I work on a lot of the time, like I'm reading poet, poetry by people that have died like hundreds of years ago. So I don't ever get to ask, what do you want from this poem? I think, I think first of all, uh, the brutality of what happened at Utah has been undercommunicated. There's been a lot of books explaining the killer's background, and, and that, that's great. But what we tried to dive into also in this book is like the brutality. These people were young people, innocent people, who came to a summer camp, which was probably the safest place on earth to go. And they were shut down in, in, in a moment of fear and extreme confusion and chaos. And I really believe that this book, go, and with the poetry, goes into that kind of modus, how extremely brutal and 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 and, uh, and horrible and and how naked this this kind of event was so one point is to kind of show the victims and show how they were removed from this earth and i believe that in the norwegian discussion a lot of people still use it like using the utr card people in politics people in 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 in, uh, in politics use utr say like the, the people who, who survived there and the people what happened is being used politically. But I think it's the other side around. I think it's it's people who don't understand really how extreme these actions were that that 
are using that kind of rhetoric. So it's also like a political thing. It's about kind of taking off the the band bandaid and showing, going straight into to to the fear and confusion and chaos these young people uh, lived through in those minutes at Utah and uh, and. and and that is, uh, that's one important thing that I want to communicate through this book is, is the brutality of, of what happened. Yeah, I think kind of that um, it's impossible to sort of legislate um, how you want somebody to feel when reading a, a poem or how uh, or exactly what you want to say. I mean, to a degree, you think of a poem as being a kind of miraculous technology where we always throughout our lives at different instances wants the ability to be able to touch someone just with the tip of our finger and for them to know exactly how we feel and how we see the world and in the absence of that there's the presence of a poem and I and when so when you sit down when when you're working through a poem I think I'm very suspicious of the idea of, of legislating for how somebody should uh, should feel at the end of it that it's part of a kind of collaboration with the reader. They come up with their own conclusions and they bring um, their own vocabulary and their own culture with them to the page and you really hope that it's an invitational space in that way at a very kind of technical level. With this, I also feel <laughs> like Andrew feels that it was under-communicated. I mean, it was the day that Amy Winehouse died and and so the way in which the story was communicated in in England was was very bad. You know, the front page of the Sun, you know, said it was Norway's nine eleven and blamed Muslim extremists, which wasn't the case at all, of course. Yeah, to the extent to which this, I kind of do want to communicate one idea in the in in the in the poems. It was definitely uh, a feeling of yeah of a, a problem shared is a is a is is a problem. Um, halved in some way, not necessarily halved, but there's a kind of, yeah, the, the feeling of communing around something. And I think that was, that was it really, it was just as straightforward as, straightforward as that. I ask you both as writers, as poets, um, among other things, um, with everything, just with the fact that the world is absolutely, everything is on fire. Um, and I just wondered how you find poetry that isn't political. Well, I think when you talk about poetry and politics, when I grew up, in Norway, you know, it was, was the source of that poet, you know, should read on its own. Uh, you can never connect really a poetry. You read Emily Dickinson. But I, I think there's, a, there's, to a certain extent, I've changed a little bit in that perspective, opinion, because I believe poetry is always political in some certain way. And especially this book, which kind of goes straight into a, a tragedy, a, a terror attack that happened just... 10 years ago. Yeah, I think there is a very fine balance between feeling like you're including a common grievance. And I think there is a common grievance to a lot of uh, poetry that is worth, that requires a voice for it so that we feel part of that, uh, part of that group. We're not alone. In other words, we're not the only people in the room, you know, raging at the TV or raging at the, raging in the news, you know. So I think that to a degree, poetry can definitely fill that hole. And I think I think that's part of the power and force of really excellent spoken word is to do exactly that kind of function. I think that's why it's so popular. People feel like, oh, I'm not, you know, the criticism is always where you're preaching to be converted. But the flip side to that is saying, well, actually, you know, this is this is something I not, you know, I'm not the only person that feels this way. I, feel, I also feel outraged. I feel 
I feel outraged to live in a, in a divorced country. And I think, you know, a lot of us feel that way. And ultimately, um, few of us feel brave enough to articulate that on the page. Um, and if you therefore have the privilege to be in a room with, you know, with a really fantastic um, spoken word performer or a really fantastic page poet who's doing that job of articulating how you feel, it's a really uh, transcending moment. It can be really transcendent. And that can be so exciting. And I look back on, you know, there's that amazing uh, Peter Whitehead movie, The Ho Holy Communion, um, about the poetry incarnation at the Royal Albert Hall in 1965. And seeing poets like uh, Adrian Rich and Christopher Logue and Ginsberg, you know, Ginsberg, how has always touched on in America. But we think, don't think as much about Adrian Mitchell in quite the same way, such an extraordinary poet, um, as such an advocate for for great education in the UK and, and thinking about kids and his famous line is, you know, most poetry, uh, you know, most people ignore uh, most poetry because most poetry ignores most people. Yeah, in t terms of whether or not a poem can be or is sort of intrinsically political, whether a poem has a kind of political feel to it, yeah, I think it is pretty inescapable. Something I think that's, that, that kind of uh, excites me as a kind of different way of looking at this, maybe just turning... Um, turning the poem in the light a little bit is to think about the way in which Picasso said I don't I don't paint the world as it is I don't paint the world as I see it I, I paint it the way I see it we're interested in picking up those voices um, and reading those poems that actually give us an insight into somebody else's perspective and that's the exciting part is seeing how how that has changed and how that changes our own perspective. Poems change the way you think. And I think that's, you know, if you look at those MRI scans of people reading po poetry and seeing that the same parts of the brain light up in, uh, as they do when you recall something, poetry has that ability to trigger imagination and memory um, and to change the way we think about the world. And that's, uh, to that extent, if a poem is constantly writing like human software, if a poem's already always doing that kind of thing, then every poem is political, inescapably so. Here's the poem again, if you want to listen to it after hearing their conversation. After the reading, we'll be listening to our interview with Karani Baroka. We talk about the prize, poetry, and what the judges were looking for, and a bit more. The green tent. The green tent. Forever changed into some light blue impact boots. Forever changed into a fair hour pullover that sleeps out in the rain. The mobile on the path forever changed into the rain-soaked paperback. Forever changed into a butterfly earring that slips from a left earlobe. The shattered glasses forever changed into strands of hair. Forever changed into the extinguished campfire that holds its breath. The hair elastic changed forever 
into a black snail, changed forever into a ponytail that stopped mid-flight. Mikrofon på utesen. The microphone on the utesen changed forever into a neglected football. Förvandlat till den efterlatte fotbollen. Förvandlat till det glatte svabagge som gapar stille. Changed forever into the wet, slippery rock agape to this day. Paniken. The panic. Förvandlat till stillhet. Förvandlat till bloddroppe till färskvanskreps. Changed forever into silence from the freshwater crayfish and the sleeping princesses till sovande prinsessa sorg the grief förvandlat till tone forever changed into vines overflowing with roses sorgen förvandlat till tio års sövn mens rosehäcken vuxer från asfalten upp längs betongen the grief changed into a decade of sleep while the roses climbed the asphalt spread along the concrete Etage, floor for etage by floor in genom de knuste vinduena growing in the broken windows Hi sure yeah um, my name is Kairani Baroka or Kairoka and I'm a writer and an artist and a translator and was recently um, for the second time in a row one of the Steven Spender Prize judges which I think is how I came to know about your podcast um, is your interest in poetry and translation. What is Steven Spender like you could try and sum it up? So it's an annual prize for poetry and translation run by the Steven Spender Trust um, and that comprises um, a bunch of activities around this prize. So there are prizes for different categories. There's um, an 18 and up or adult prize for you know a general um, audience. And then there's prizes for different age categories. So three uh, different youth categories. There's also a focus language every year. So for instance, this year it was Urdu. Um, you know, last year was another language and the next year it'll be another language. Um, with a different judge for that particular language focus. So this year it was Sasha Akhtar, I believe, who was the, the judge for Urdu. And around that we have, you know, the publication of a pamphlet with the winning poems and our judges commentary. And it's an, also an opportunity for schools to really get into, teachers and schools to really get into the idea of using poetry in translation and translating poetry as part of the curriculum. So you're, would you say that you're a poet and a writer before you're a translator? Like what, where does, it, where does translation like come in for you? Translation is creative writing, right? It's just that every word is a prompt, right? Every sentence is a different prompt for creative writing. Um, it is creating an original art form. Um, my colleague, Jeremy Tiang uh, says it best. I think uh, he's a um, translator and one of the judges for the upcoming Man Booker Prize says, you know, nothing is translatable. Everyone's just trying their best. <laughs> so every form of translation really is a, an act of creativity. I, I really do think so, because there are some things that just aren't, uh, everything is untranslatable, um, which is why um, I like to use Indonesian words in my English poetry and not italicize them and vice versa. And uh, I recently wrote a poem that was three languages in one poem, Baso Minang, Indonesian and English, and I had them all fighting. <laughs> Um, so I, 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 yeah, I think it's a, it's a wonderful part of creative work is translation. Can I ask, so it's interesting that you mentioned this, like, this, like, you know, cause yeah, like you say, I often see translations and when there's a word from the like source text, the source language, like it is italicized, but, and I was wondering, cause in the winning 
uh, poem for the open category. Um, I think Harry kept in Uta Senen, um, in like as in he kept in like um I think it's block mud. I don't I feel like I'm pronouncing uh, it wrong, yeah. but like rich in Norwegian. <laughs> I um, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Also, <laughs> I was so nervous when I had to say it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, you got to roll that roll an R, and I don't know if I'm ready for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So he, he kept in one of the one of the words. Um, um, but I just wondered, like, as judges, whether that was something you thought about, whether you looked at it and you were like, I wonder. In, in terms of the source language in the translation. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think it's on a case by case basis. And I actually really love it when um, uh, words are kept in. Um, I'm working on a translation right now where I just really want to keep using um, a certain Indonesian word and, 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 and have that just be there because that co the concept around that particular word in the case of the short story I'm translating is really key to the whole thing. And the repetition of that word is really key. And if you translate it, the repetition doesn't hit the same way. It's it's really so much on a case by case basis, right? It's a matter of not only aesthetics, but in terms of ethics also, and 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 uh, what um, you feel fits with the soul of the poem. So for Harry Mann, who was the winner of the open category this year, who had this beautiful um, poem that he managed to translate in the same shape, it was kind of in the shape of a person's head, right? And he kept that form. Uh, into the English translation, um, there's something about that that is very personal and e evokes um, a sense of place because you're imagining these people. It, it's about far right violence, right, in Norway. Um, and I think the addition of the uh, of the word in in Bokma really, you know, added a, a lot to that. Um, and I don't. I think it it really is on a case by case basis. Yeah, how does it work? Do you um? Like, is a commentary sent in with the translation? Like, how do you judge whether, like, a translation's good or whether, like, a poem, the original poem is just really good, so the translation was, like, always <laughs> going to be good? Like, how, I imagine, because, yeah, I mean, I imagine I, you don't speak Norwegian. Maybe you do. I, I do not speak Norwegian. I don't, sadly. Um, so I think that just because a poem is beautiful in the original, is wonderful in the original, never means automatically that it will be wonderful when translated. It can go wrong in so many ways, right? It, I really don't think that an original work being wonderful automatically means a translation. You can botch that in innumerable ways, you know? And it that's why it's such a responsibility if you're translating somebody else's work, right? to really, that's why I love translate translation as a collaboration. And I always like to ask people I'm working with and vice versa, when I have my work translated, I love and appreciate when the translator asks me tons of questions because then I know they're really paying attention to the subtleties, right? So I don't think, I think the whole point of the Stephen Spender prize is that never assume a translation will be good just because the original is good. Like there, and there are infinite ways to translate a single poem, right? We saw so many multiple, um, submissions of translations of the same poem, like sometimes schools will, you know, translate the same poem altogether, and they're so different, right? Every kid has a different word choice. Um, and I, I think that, uh, yes, we do require co short commentaries to be sent in um, when people send in their translations. So um, 
we asked people to write, you know, also like three difficulties that they had and how they overcame those difficulties. Um, so that was a way in, in which we knew, okay, this, this person is, you know, really paying attention to these subtleties. It's a great way to learn as well about, you know, what went into the process and what this poem is about. And sometimes the commentaries will have, as in the case of Harry Mans um, and in the case of uh, the other winners, you know, background, a little bit of background on who the poet is, the original poet. Um, and and the topic that they're writing about and why like why this is significant in the oeuvre and um, and I think that adds a lot to the experience of judging so we're not just going in thinking what is this poem who who wrote this poem why you know so it there's a bit of the information about the original poem but then also through asking what are the challenges that you know asking people to write about their translation process then you also get a bit of the translator's personal viewpoint as well. Yeah, I realized, um, you know, once we were doing the interview with both of them, that these people were like had like had worked together. It was definitely a collaborative effort. And I feel like it really has to be for, for a topic that's so um, politically heavy, important, and you just have to be so careful, right? Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, so I was I was reading your um, I was reading like some of the comments that you made about the translation. Um, and I don't know how much you remember of it, um, but when you said that it does justice to the commemorated victims um, of uh, the attack. Uh, and I just wondered if you could like maybe give some examples of that. I mean, maybe it's a bit much to ask because um, I imagine it was a while ago that you like. Did you mean examples of how the translation did justice to the commemorated victims specifically? Yeah, and I realize it's quite a difficult yeah. question because it's asking you like, so you know, how the movement from one language to another might. But I just wonder if you had any sort of... Um, yeah, so when I say, when I said in my judge's commentary, because all three of the judges provided a judge's commentary, I meant that, um, first of all, it's quite difficult to translate poems that are in such a specific form. You know, it's it's in the shape of a, a person's head, right? It's quite, that's, it's quite a challenge to do that well. And in addition to write about something that is about uh, mass death, mass violence, which is obviously you know, a plague that continues to ravage the world, particularly with the rise of fascism um, uh, in Europe, for instance, it's, it's uh, difficult to do it with subtlety and humility. Um, and I, I truly think that Harry's translation was uh, was very sensitive and very attuned to um, the need for, in my interpretation at least, and, and I'm interested to hear your interview with Harry and, and um, you know, the, the original poet, but to let the poet's um, original intentions breathe rather than being unnecessarily, using perhaps unnecessarily bombastic words. So for instance, the panic changed forever into silence from the freshwater crayfish and the sleeping princesses. It could be, you know, the hysteria changed ever more into quietude, right? That's another way to translate that, but it doesn't hit the same way. I think, and I really think when it comes to extremely heavy topics, it is, it does need to be in collaboration with the original author and also in terms of the, the humility that you need to approach the translation with. Um, and to understand, to trust that the emotion will come through. It's almost like you're leading the reader to a place of reverence, right? Because this is in commemoration of 
of victims. So to do that in a quiet way is is different. It's a choice, right? And I'm glad that Harry made that choice, and that's why we we agreed that he um, he should win. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. I never really thought about it like that. I sort of when I read it, I was like, how do they know that these choices were good choices? How do they know like that like unless they go back and look at the original and like sort of like look at the every meaning of each word like how do you make those but you're so right like I never thought about the synonyms and like and also we do require the original poem to be sent in as well so we can you know if we want to we can you know go a bit more a, a bit deeper into you know uh, with obviously the limitations of none of us to my knowledge speaking Norwegian um, you know we can do our own bit of research right into like okay well what what might what is what might be the effect of this couple of words um, and also uh, in the in in Harry's um, commentary, it's it's about uh, in he he said in Rousset's poem he repeats the word for vandlet and again apologies for my butchering of that word potentially meaning to transform or convert and and in English both have an aspect of ongoing mutability and so he's talking about change. Um, and mutability and, and the etymology of the words as well. So it's it's really interesting, to, again, to look into the choices behind um, uh, uh, the words. And it's, it is also about just affect and how a poem hits you, right? Um, and not thinking of it in a very sort of rote, uh, you know, in our in our position as, as some of us judges are as teachers, right? Like correcting, like, what what is this? But actually as readers who are enjoying a work of art, that for me is the number one thing is like, how does it hit you emotionally? Um, can I read this poem without thinking about something technical and not actually feeling the poem? Um, that is really important, I think. Um, can I ask you a question that like is maybe just like a bit broader and just like about poetry in general? Because um, I, I noticed yeah. that like, I looked at some of the work that you've done and it feels very political like I might be wrong I might, but it seems like yeah no um, it is yeah. Very, yeah, <laughs> yeah of course I um, think everything's political yeah well this was my question I was just wondering so this is a conversation we had without wanting to be harsh and without trying to be accusatory I was just sort of wondering like, how you reconcile mm -hmm. writing poetry making art out of something like a tragedy that isn't that does affect you in a way you are linked to it but you know you're not you're kind of speaking on on behalf of other people or like you know trying to I think in general but also like I do wonder whether like you know questions of ethics ever came up or whether you know you ever discussed like of course like... yeah so I teach workshops on writing from the archives um and ethics is a bedrock element of how I teach that in terms of I'm constantly constantly thinking um I think it is always a very delicate balance and it true for me I like to I hope I try and ask myself the golden rule, right? Would I be okay if somebody else wrote this poem about me and my experience? And I think that because what happens so often is because we live in an overwhelmingly white publishing world <laughs> in the Anglophone world, right? And we have so many people who write about other people's experience by virtue of their privilege, right? So for instance, there are a lot of people who write about Asian communities or you know they go to Asia and they like write about that and they're not Asian and depend it it's very case dependent right <laughs> you know like do they write in empathy and with humility or as is unfortunately still often the case do are a lot of stereotypes coming in into how they write Asian characters right and Asian experiences and 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 what gave them the right to do that and I think that's 
actually also the case in terms of translation, um, there are a lot of cases where I think that um, people from the West who translate into other languages are very highly privileged above other people who may also be bilingual, but by virtue of their citizenship or their, you know, how they're racialized, et cetera, are not given the same opportunities. So I think, you know, translation is part of publishing, is part of literature, and that does not exist in a vacuum. Everything is, it's, it's an industry, right? It is an industry on however large or small a scale you might want to think of that. And I think you need to always think about why am I writing this? Am I sensationalizing someone's death or life without their permission? Why am I doing this? So for instance, I, 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 when I write about dead characters, I tend to get speculative. So for instance, like this could be, I use a lot of could be's and maybe's because ultimately the only person who knows what really happened is them, right? Um, nobody knows what it's like to be in another person's body, <laughs> nobody. And, and, and so I think, um, but I, but I do write also about tragedies that happen to, let's say, my community. And it is an interesting question, right? Like, who, like, how do you think you have the right to write about something? And how does that affect you? Um, I think humility is a huge part of writing about other people as the, from the past and the present and, and, and a real self-interrogation, which can be difficult, right? Like, why am I doing this? Because I think as a disabled person, I know a lot of people, you know, sensationalize or sort of use disabled people as like props or metaphors or, you know, um, and that's quite annoying <laughs> to read. Um, so I think it is really important that translations are thought of where possible because sometimes you're translating dead authors, right? Collaboratively um, and with a sense of humility. And if you're writing about, if you're writing and translating about something that is, um, you know, not your own experience or sensitive in other ways, like, you know, a tragedy, uh, to really examine why you're doing that and the ethics behind doing that. Yeah, I think the conversation that um, that we had was very much like a tough question, you know, which I think is, <laughs> yeah. is I think I would have been skeptical if, so like, if I'd asked that question, someone was like, this is my set answer to that. Do you know what I mean? I feel like it's always. Yeah, but yeah no, exactly. Like, All we can do is try our best. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I think, yeah, that sense of humility and like empathy and, and like quiet sort of, yeah, when I when I read the um, translation, when I read the, I guess the kind of poems, I mean, because of the way they work, it feels like they're, they're two poems that are kind of, they are tran like translations of each other, but also um, they stand alone. And I don't know, when I read it, I just felt like I was being like punched. I don't know, it was horrible. It was the first time I've cried from like a poem in a really long time. Oh, wow. And I feel very pretentious saying that. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, but I think it's but I no. think it's because you can hear about something horrible and not feel anything because of the way that yeah. the world is. I mean, that's the beauty of poetry, and that is the beauty of poetry and translation, right? It it is so intimate and it's such an emotional, it can be such an emotional experience. Whereas newspaper headlines and media headlines, I mean, or just be or just being on social media, you know, you scroll through horrible things that are happening all over the world and how much actual quietude and um and stillness do we feel with that right um have we become desensitized to that and i think poetry is an act of sensitization at its best for example like, there was one line that for me like for some reason like i'm still thinking about it the black snail and the ponytail the hair elastic changed forever into a black snail 
change yes. forever into a ponytail but yeah yeah so something about yeah. that I read it was last like, that's good like I don't know what good means but that's well good you know <laughs> yeah it's such a specific it's such a specific image and again those small tiny snapshots um talking about this very momentous event in a very um observant um sophisticated way is 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 a choice that I think I, I really appreciated. I, I actually like the re- the last line a lot. The grief changed into a decade of sleep while the roses climbed the asphalt, spread along the concrete floor by floor, forever growing in the broken windows. Forever growing, the grief forever growing in the broken windows is something I really love because it is the final sentence, but there's not a sense of finality. Instead, it's one of expansion and of of grief continuing and commemoration continuing which i think is really beautiful um can i ask you about a bit more like about like the process between you and the other judges because in my head like it's a very romantic thing like you sit in a dark room and you read poetry and you like decide oh my god (laughs) is it like that it was so uh, I think, I, I don't know if you saw um, the, the awards ceremony, but Samantha Schnee was cited as saying the process was like being under a fire hose of, of translate bulbs. It was it, every, I mean, this is the, the second year that I've done it. And every year that I do, it's just, it's so much poetry. It's hundreds and hundreds of poems that thankfully this year, I think, um, I mean, it's always enjoyable, honestly. Um, but it's still a lot. So I divide, you know, like I divide up one day is like, okay, one day I'm going to write, I'm going to read, like try and read a hundred poems a day. I'm going to try and read a hundred poems the next day and all the, and, but, but it's, it's, it's also, you could, it can be kind of like um, an, an exhausting thing. So I tried to like have a few days off and then go back to my choices and just reread them for a bit. So we all do that individually on our own. And then we have a judging meeting that is, you know, takes hours and it's over Zoom this time. Uh, I think last year it was also over Zoom, actually. <laughs> and, um, you know, we see what everybody else chose and if there are any overlaps, right? And then we go through the process of, of you know, like defending or... And sometimes in that, in that judges meeting, that's when you realize things that you didn't before from other judges and vice versa, they will learn things from you about your decision there. Like, oh, I didn't see it from that angle. Okay, I'm with you now. I understand now why you chose that one as, you know, commended rather than this one. And it's, um, yeah, it's really, it's a really interesting uh, process. It is a lot of work, <laughs> but it's, um, you know, it is enjoyable. No, it sounds lovely. It sounds really nice to be able to, because hearing other people's interpretations of poetry is always just like, I don't know, it's always amazing. I don't know, how do you reconcile, what do you think about poetry that isn't political? I am of the opinion personally that everything is political, whether or not people understand it as political because we live in a world of inequities and injustice and violence, right? And where you live is political. What language you write in is certainly political. I think that's a big part of Stephen Spender Trust Prize is like, we wanted to champion languages that were underrepresented and um, regions of the world that were under-translated into English, right? Like that's that's important to take into account as well um, as, as we did look at, you know, like what where are these poets coming from? Because we didn't want to have lists that were just completely, uh, like imagine if all the Stephen Spender Trust winners came from Europe, which is it's just not reflective of the world. And it wasn't reflective of the quality because there was so much quality 
of translation coming from other poets from other parts of the world, right? We didn't, we deliberately didn't want to be Eurocentric and um, in that sense. I think that, yeah, I think everything is political, but I also think that nobody has the right to tell anybody else what to, to, to write in terms of like, who's to say that somebody's heart isn't changed by a poem you write about your duvet or, or your teacup or your sister, or, you know, like something that is, or a fun poem that might lighten up somebody's day when they're having a really hard time. You know, like poetry operates in these really subtle, intimate ways. And we can never know the impact we have on other people. And what I think is so beautiful is like about um, being involved in the world of literature and translation is you get to share with other people, oh my God, your book really changed me. Or, you know, like, or you find out that your work really changed somebody else or helped them out. Who's to say that, you know, I mean, some of the winners um, or commendees were, you know, kids translating kids poetry, right? That's really valuable. I think that is political to have kids have fun with poetry. I think that's really political because a lot of kids don't have access to that and are not taught to appreciate that. You know what I mean? So political doesn't just need to be like, who are you voting for? Or, or you know, like writing about writing about horrible the horrible violence that exists around us. It can be as simple as being political in the sense of I am of the political opinion that children need childhoods, and they should enjoy their childhoods with poetry. That's a political statement. It definitely is because I mean, the translating poetry has classist implications. Like, but when I was like yes. in primary school or high school, like. I went to like a state school um, and it was never like, oh, and now we will translate the greats, you know, it, that was never, I mean, poetry has always felt like this sort of elitist thing. Um, and it's obviously it's not. So many people I've met, I don't know if you've, you've probably met people also who are like, oh, I hate poetry. <laughs> and so much of that is because of their schooling. As you said, you know, they're taught that poetry is one thing. Poetry is um, Shakespeare. Poetry is, you know, poetry isn't, um, poetry is not Megan Thee Stallion. But Megan Thee Stallion is poetry. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's uh, songs and stories in in you know musical form or in forms that are not Western are poetry, and people aren't taught that. Poetry writing and reading is taught as you know a very solitary act. And to quote the late great eternal Toni Morrison at the American Writers Congress, "We don't need any more writers as solitary heroes. We need a heroic writers movement." assertive, militant, pugnacious. And I really love that. It's like, we don't need people to be on their own. And also that's not gonna help you. You know, writing is a communal act and, and we do need a heroic writers movement because it's, you know, it's never been a great time. <laughs> like it's, the world has always been so full of tragedy and certainly is now it's a difficult time. Yeah, this collaboration, um, really, I think that's one of the things that really struck me with um, Harry and Andrew was, was that it was obviously Andrew's project, um, these elegies, um, but he felt like he needed Harry's help in order to like do it properly, do it justice and like, you know, um, um, which I think is, you know, I think writers supporting each other is just, I don't know, when I, when the way that they would speak, speak about each other with such respect and like, love for each other's work I don't know I just found it That's really beautiful, beautiful. um yeah. yeah um okay I do have one question it's a bit I don't want it to come across as aggressive um but 
<laughs> go ahead I don't know well it's something that I like think about as well like doing this podcast because it, it came out of like if you go to like just a general bookstore in like the UK like translated literature is not really a thing so I was like well yep you know translation is really important um but I do sometimes wonder by translating it into English and by you know bringing a poem to English Mm -hmm. does that actually do anything with anglocentrism so this is a real ethical question so on the one hand like if i'm translating from a lesser known language in the west like vasomina right i want to in a way my rationalization for that is i want people to know this language exists a lot of people haven't even heard of this language and maybe people know that it exists and maybe they'll care about it and maybe they all think oh these people have cultures that are worth preserving right and and have respect and and build, you know like just have a wider sense of the world like um there's this term in Indi- there's a saying in indonesian like dunia tidak selebar daun kelor which means like the world isn't as big as a leaf you know like it's just there's it's a huge world out there um, my dad says that to me a lot <laughs> um like open your horizons um and uh it's I think it's a real ethical question. And also, I don't think everything should be translated. And not everything should be translated by everyone. Again, with the ethics of something, I think there are a lot of indigenous languages and indigenous peoples who have very fragile, under threat cultures that have the right not to be translated. And I've written about this as well. Like the, it's you have the right not to want to be translated into English. That because, you know, that is you know, a form of capture. <laughs> it is a form of colonial capture. But on the other hand, you know, I'm working with, uh, for instance, you know, when I translate writers, they're writers who are who really want their work to be translated into English because they want their stories to reach more people. And their story is about Indonesia, right? So people understand, oh, this is, you know, like just learning about each other's cultures is, is, is valuable if it's uh, based on, empathy and mutual respect and not oh I want to then culturally appropriate you you know <laughs> which it can also turn into it's it's a dangerous it's a dangerous uh slippery slope I think honestly is there a poet um or a poem or something that you wish more people knew about um but they don't I wish more people knew more about indigenous Indonesian languages um I wish people knew more about the 700 plus languages we have in the Indonesian archipelago. Um, and I, uh, yeah, there's just so much. It's so deep. There's there's centuries of cosmology and poetry and beauty um, that people don't really have an idea of. I remember I wrote a poem about Sumatra where, where my mom's side is from. And somebody was like, do you mean Sumeria? And I was like, no, it's an island. Sumatra guys <laughs> you know so just like I think there's there needs to be more awareness of Southeast Asia in general and Asia in general I think it's still kind of shocking how you know how little people know or assume about you know about different Asian cultures um and in terms of yeah favorite translated authors I have so so many um oh god Rita Indiana is like I just an author that I push on everyone um, their book Tentacle translated by Achio Bejas um, it's, it's out with and other stories and the sequel to Tentacle or prequel sequel because <laughs> it's very sci-fi um, to Tentacle Made in Saturn uh, which is translated 
by, I cannot remember the translator's name right now, but it's also translated into English um, by, by another translator. It's also out with And Other Stories. And those two books are just iconic to me. Um, but in general, there's so much incredible translated literature out. Like, I mean, I think <laughs> the, the more Anglophone countries realize that they're not the center of the universe. <laughs> I think that is, I think that is, um, uh, that has been going along with an increase in interest in translated literature um, and translated works in general. I mean, Parasite, uh, when it won the Oscar, I loved when Bong Joon-ho was like, if you get over the, the one inch tall barrier of subtitles, you're gonna have access to so many amazing films. And that's how I feel about translated poetry and translated lit, like there isn't even a barrier, quote unquote, of subtitles, it's literature, right? Um, and I don't know why it isn't, um, yeah, it, it, it doesn't have a higher um, market share, but it should, because there's so much out there, so yeah. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We definitely enjoyed making it. We have a really exciting episode coming up that's more of the usual structure, but in the meantime, the Seed and Thunder Prize for Poetry Translation will be launching this spring. We've put a link to their website in this episode's bio, but they're big on Twitter and Facebook as well. The handles are also in the bio. There are so many people to thank for this episode. Um, I don't even know where to start, so I'll just put a big list in the description of the episode. Thank you so much.